Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Sometimes we can take our bodies for granted, but they're more than just muscle and bone. And through conscious movement and practice, we can become more connected to our bodies and to each other. That's the theme of the new book, Body Becoming, A Path to Our Liberation by Dr. Robin Henderson Espinoza. The theologian and activist details the journey of recognizing their own body and how that has enhanced their sense of community and hope for the future. Later this hour, Dr. Robin will join us to talk about the overturning of Roe v. Wade, their new book, their activism, and the experience that shaped them. But first, the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade on Friday sparked immediate reaction here in Nashville and across Tennessee. We dedicated our show to it, which you can listen to back at thisisnashville.org. On Friday evening, hundreds of protesters gathered at the Metro Courthouse in downtown Nashville to protest. As a parent, it's important to me that my children know that they should respect women's bodies, they should respect everybody's bodies, and who and the decisions that they make. It's never about just the one thing. This is about, you know, disenfranchising people, whether it be when it comes to their bodies, to health care, to education, to keeping people where they are so that a certain subset can always stay where they are. That's what this is really about. It's racism, it's classism, it's elitism, it's every kind of visit. And when you have people who are trying to keep it as status quo, we're in a we're in a bad place. I love this country and I want it to be a country of freedom and for all, not just for some. The two voices you heard were Nashvilleans Jack Willie and Tony Thomas. To give us a better understanding of what took place since the decision was announced, I'm joined by WPLN political reporter Blaze Ganey. Blaze, how's it going? It's going good. Good afternoon. Good afternoon to you, my friend. Now, a few hours before that downtown abortion rights rally, Tennessee Democrats held a press conference. What stood out to you about that? Well, honestly, uh, what the Democrats said did not stand out to me uh, as much. It was actually what doctors that were there mm. said that stood out the most, and it was the fact that, um, you know, once the trigger law here in Tennessee takes effect, it'll actually be very difficult to decide when to do an abortion because it, it says at the point a patient's life is in danger is the only time when one can be performed. And when that happens is, is sort of, you know, up in the air? Is it once they are actually very close to death or once they take some test and realize maybe this person uh, isn't healthy enough to give birth and later in pregnancy would possibly suffer, um, you know, issues with their life? That is a huge question. Now, in addition to the protest against the Supreme Court decision, there were also some events in support, like the one held by Tennessee Right to Life. Here's the organization's president, Stacy Dunn. The overturning of Roe versus Wade is certainly not the end of pro-life work in Tennessee. Today we celebrate the victory, but tomorrow we get back to work. 
So it's a new work week. Blaze, what do we know about what kinds of additional efforts they might be looking at? Well, of course, they want to pass more bills, I'd imagine. And and I've heard, um, you know, to, to basically limit people's access to abortions. And, you know, that could mean some some sort of way to stop people from traveling. Um, mm. Now, I've talked with a lot of people, and, and I'm not sure there would be a way to do that. Um, but I, I don't think it would stop them from trying. And that clip we listened to earlier, you can hear people chanting, Billy has got to go. Can you remind listeners what the governor said on Friday when the Supreme Court decision came down? Yeah, Governor Lee called it a hopeful new chapter for our country. Um, He also speaks to the fact that Tennessee lawmakers have spent years preparing for this um, by putting laws on the books that would criminalize performing or attempting an abortion um, unless to prevent death or permanent bodily injury to the patient, which, as I said earlier, is is really up in the air on when that uh, time is actually there. So with Roe overturned, that sets a stage for Tennessee's trigger law, right? I mean, where do we stand on that? Yeah, I wish I had a very clear answer on this, but the best I can tell you is that sometime in July, that trigger law will take effect. There is a 30-day waiting period um, before it takes effect, and right now the Attorney General's office is trying to decide whether that 30 days started on Friday uh, when Roe v. Wade was overturned or whether they have to take some action. Um, But they're supposed to reach out to the Tennessee Code Commission, and they haven't done that yet. Um, And also— we're still wondering whether that is when the 30 days starts. But uh, I think the the safest bet is that it will start sometime late in July. Okay. Now, then on top of the trigger law, there's also a six-week ban that had been halted in court. What's the status of that? So, yes, the, the one that's hauled up, halted in courts right now, um, it is likely to take effect, I would say, sometime this week. Um, Attorney General Herbert Slatery asked for the Sixth Circuit Court to remove that hold last Friday, um, really hours after the Roe v. Wade uh, was overturned. And the ACLU submitted their response to it this morning. And now the the courts have given the state until 4 p.m. to respond. And at that point, uh, they could make a ruling on both parties' motions, which means either later today or tomorrow, um, it, it could take effect. And once they make a ruling, if it is to, you know, get rid of that hold or stay, um, it'll take effect immediately. Okay. So right after that, six-week abortions uh, will no longer be. Okay. Now, this weekend was packed with pre-scheduled pride celebrations. What was the atmosphere like? Like, you know, did people talk to you about the Supreme Court decision? Yeah, I mean, um, well, the atmosphere w- was great. I think most pride festivals are atmosphere is probably very lively, and, and that's exactly what it was. It was 97 degrees, a hot day, but that didn't keep thousands of people from coming out and, um, you know, celebrating. Mm-hmm. And, but as, as far as the Supreme Court, of course, being a reporter, I did go up to a couple of people and ask them their thoughts on it. And they were pretty grim responses. I mean, people were not happy about, obviously, uh, the abortion ruling and the fact that Justice Clarence Thomas mentioned possibly reconsidering same-sex marriage. Were any elected officials at the events? What did they have to say? I did not see any at the the Pride Festival, um, which was what, what I was at this weekend. But I'd imagine they, they could have been out there. I was really in the crowds and amongst the people trying to, you know, hear, hear just the regular common folks' uh, thoughts. Now, in reference to the six-week ban we talked about earlier, what is the ACLU asking for? So 
I'd imagine I haven't had time to look over it. They really sent it to me, you know, minutes before I got on the show. Okay. But I, I would imagine that they are essentially asking for some more time, um, which mm. is usually what happens in these situations. Um, you know, essentially it, they'd be very uh, unlikely to get that. I would say just um, off off of my head only, um, with no okay. lawyer background or anything. But yeah, I. I it's it's been overturned and states can decide and if the state decides six week ban is what they want and I mean I don't I don't see how a court could say no we're going to continue to stop the state from doing so yeah now as we go on you know the four p.m. deadline anything else you're watching today no that that's the biggest thing I'm looking at and I would say the reason why I want to explain um, to me and a lot of people have said this before but a six week abortion ban is almost essentially an outright ban because uh, yeah. you add that with a 48-hour wait period. Um, I mean, most people don't know that they're pregnant until maybe six weeks or after mm -hmm. um, and, and, and are definitely not showing um, as far as, you know, their, their belly getting any bigger. Um, so uh, to, to me, I mean, in July, it, it, the trigger ban is, is definitely important. But I think the six-week one is almost just as important as, um, I mean, I, I believe Planned Parenthood is already stopping taking new appointments for abortions and, and whatnot. Now, have you heard anything new from Planned Parenthood? I haven't. That, that's the most recent thing that I've heard, um, and that came from uh, our colleague Blake Farmer, who who spoke with them over the weekend. And, I mean, that, that, that's pretty devastating news, you know, to the fact that this came out and then they're saying, if, if you don't have an appointment with us at this point, um, you know, we will, They I, I believe they are helping people try to find ways to, go around it as far as traveling out of the state. But um, that that's as far as here in Tennessee, I believe they're, they're not taking any more appointments. Wow. This is a big issue that's only going to continue to grow. That is Blaze Ganey, political reporter for WPLN News. Thank you, Blaze. Thanks a lot for being here. Thank you. We have to take a short break. When we come back, Dr. Robin Henderson Espinoza will join us to talk about their reaction to the Supreme Court's decision and their new book, Body Becoming, A Path to Our Liberation. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. Bodies have been on Dr. Robin Henderson Espinoza's mind for, well, years. They've been exploring how to connect more deeply with their own body. That process has spurred them to think more about how that sense of embodiment extends beyond the self to the larger community. That's the journey they take us on in their new book, Body Becoming, A Path to Our Liberation. I'm happy to welcome trans-queer trans -queer theologian, activist, and author, Dr. Robinson, Dr. Robin Henderson Espinoza to the show. Dr. Robin, thanks for joining us. It's good to be here. Congratulations on the new book. Thanks so much. Let's hope it does something in the world. I, I, I believe it will. Now, you know, Body Becoming, it's about many things, but largely about getting in touch with your body and feeling at one with yourself. Why did you want to write this book? Well, I think after I finished my PhD in 2015, I sort of came to this awareness that I was living life from the shoulders up. And 
walked into a therapist office in uh, California where I had taken my first faculty job in the Bay Area. And I asked this therapist, how do I have a relationship with my body? And there was something kind of, you know, stewing in me that told me I need to figure out how to be in relationship with my body so that I can be in relationship with people around me. I don't know where that came from, maybe ancestral wisdom, but something was there that I was like, I need to chase this down. What's the process of becoming more familiar with your body? What's that process been like? Listen, it has been a whole journey um, from learning how to get on the ground and get off the ground. So for example, when I when I moved to Nashville, I started going to a somatic class and I was in class and I write about this in the book. I'm I'm in class with like 70-year-olds and 80-year-olds, people who are significantly older than me who were more flexible, more limber, m- more able to like if they were to fall could get off the ground mm-hmm. because I was socialized by a Mexican woman who told me never to get dirty because the narrative about Mexicans is that they're dirty. Mm. I didn't spend a lot of time on the ground or in dirt or like sitting on the ground. So it's quite comical to watch me get up and down the, the ground. I just don't have that skill. So like that was one of the things like learning to get in touch with gravity, mm. learning to let mama earth hold me. Okay. Now you mentioned like getting into relationship with your body. Explain to me what you mean by that. Well, I, I think it's relationships all the way down. And I think that So much of what has happened, certainly since the 2016 presidential election, which prompted me to move back home to the South, um, has been a relational thing and a relationship with ourselves and our relationship with other people. And I feel like there is a formula that if we are in better relationship with ourselves, with our material selves, with our flesh and bones... Mm -hmm if we have a better felt sense of ourselves, then we can actually have better interpersonal relationships and those interpersonal relationships can shape and shift our cultural body or our democratic body, which is the case that I make in the book. Now, is this more than just about body positivity? Because that's one way to look at yourself differently, I feel like, you know, but this is like truly, truly recognizing yourself in your body, the entity, the mind, the body and the spirit. Is that what you're talking about? It is. And I would say there's a there's a. There's a phrase that I really like, which um, sort of has evolved from attachment theory in in the psychological field. And so if we can have a like a secure attachment with ourselves, mm. then we can have secure attachments in our interpersonal relating, and then that can shape and shift our cultural body. But because often we don't have secure attachments with ourselves, we then are unable to have secure attachments with one another, right? And so mm-hmm. one of the things that I love to do with with folks is eat eat with folks because it's hard to hate people when you're eating good food. So how True. can like how can we return to some of these ancient practices to help suture the wounds and help create secure attachments with ourselves and each other? Now we're talking about the body and on Friday the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade, taking away the right to an abortion for people who can become pregnant. What went through your mind when you heard the news? 
Well, I remember exactly where I was. I was walking from my bedroom into the hallway to go to the dining room, and I received an alert um, that morning from Axios News, and I tend to read Axios and NPR sort of all day long and the New York Times. And I, um, I thought, okay, so they've overturned Roe, um, am I going to be able to receive my trans health care at Vanderbilt? Am I going to be able to access my testosterone, which makes me have a livable life? And thank goodness that I already have an IUD or I might not be able to access that, mm-hmm. you know, elective contraceptions. Um, and so I really went down a whole list. My mind tends to catastrophize just in general. Okay. And so I thought, okay, not only is the house on fire, but like my bedroom is on fire. Yeah. And what what do I do now? And I reached out to a bunch of my trans friends and just said, hey, how are you? Um, folks reached out to me and said, they have no hope. And my response to everybody is, our work right now is to build ethical futures because they're trying to create segregated futures. And um, so I try to stay positive and like lean in to the uncertainty and also kind of a, oh crap moment. Like, what do we do now? What were your emotions like? Were you angry? Were you, were you livid? Were you scared? So I would say all of that. And, and my sort of fundamental feeling thought because i think as as a as a mexican american i sort of have this these gut feelings that are not just rational thought but like visceral responses mm-hmm. my 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 thought feeling was this country hates anyone with a vagina mm. or a uterus and what do we do about the sexism and misogyny that is that is going to kill us all. You know, your book is all about us becoming one with our bodies. Mm-hmm. Now the highest court in the land has said that for tens of millions of people in the country, you will not be able to express the full embodiment of self and prevent it from making decisions about your own bodies. You just mentioned that you feel like this country hates people with vaginas. What else does it tell you about the type of future we are setting ourselves up for? Well, I don't think I need to remind you of this, um, but returning things to the states creates a segregated future. And we've already done that, and it doesn't work. And, you know, people have looked at me with, like, that I've got seven heads when I say, if they overturn Roe v. Wade, marriage equality is next, then Brown versus Board of Education, mm-hmm. then... Loving versus Virginia, and as evidenced by Clarence Thomas's sole opinion that the court should look into marriage equality, I mean, I texted my partner, um, who is out of town right now, and I said, Clarence Thomas mentioned this in his opinion. I think we need to think seriously about this. And so we are taking steps. We were going to get married ahead of the midterm elections. But we are taking steps now to try to secure our rights as quickly as we can before they take more away from us. I mean, I'm I as a trans person and a and a mixed race person, I'm terrified 
of what is next. Now, how does the fact that this decision was rendered during Pride Month resonate with you? Is that just some weird, sick coincidence or a symbol and sign? Well, you know, I um, I tend to talk with a lot of people who call this country a death cult. Hmm. And I think that the decision, not only the leak, but then the final decision coming out in Pride Month on Pride Weekend, Pride in New York City and San Francisco and in Nashville were all on the same weekend. And... I mean, I I don't know what the intent was, but certainly the impact is that um, there's no safe space. And sure enough, as soon as the decision was unveiled, I began to see threatening tweets that felt as though it compromised my safety. Now, the fallout from this decision, I want to talk about your activism a little bit later in the show, but I'd like to get your sense of what the political fallout of this will be. The midterm elections are in November. What do you see taking place? Well, you know, um, for me, it's always choosing the better of two evils and that the Democrats are out-organized by the right and the Democrats are more deeply invested in establishment politics than what I would call moral imagination or an ethical future. But it always comes down to like choosing the better of two evils. Uh So I know that Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, said on Friday that she will do her best to try to shore up, you know, and suture the gaps. Um, But we know that since the 80s, the moral majority has been out organizing everyone, not only through hoarding social capital, but through a kind of religious agenda to ensure a theocracy. And I, so I'm, I am nervous about the midterm elections, be, partially because I don't know that anybody who is left of center, I don't know that we're able to like be deeply, um, woven together as as a people. And what I mean by that is there is a still us against them mentality. When you when you talk to white bodied folks and you talk to bodies of culture, people like you and me, that you and I have a different idea of what safety or government or um, protection looks like, because we have to think about it on the daily. Whereas white-bodied folks, can we just shore up Social Security or can we just shore up these institutions that are more trickle-down effects, right? So it will be very interesting to see, is there a groundswell that, that sort of mobilizes the middle to help tip the top or will the top win again and be self-interested that will then ultimately harm people like you and me? Do you think protesting and voting is going to be enough? So I'm a big believer in a diversity of tactics. I think we need all of it. And and we need people. I mean, you and I have had this conversation before. You know, we're encouraging a lot of people of color to run for office. Mm-hmm. But, f- but for what end? You know, it's a broken system. Uh, then they will be complicit in supremacy culture. And will they internalize it? 
to a point where they will be ineffective. So I think we do need good people in office, but how do we how do we ensure or how do we place a hedge of protection around them so that they won't acquiesce to the harm that is being done right now or was done on Friday? But it takes a diversity of tactics. We need lots of different things to make an ethical future. And the midterms is is one way. And yet we need to be strategic. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Colonna. We're talking this hour with Dr. Robin Henderson Espinoza about their new book, Body Becoming, A Path to Our Liberation. You know, and, and asking you about, you know, what you think as far as, you know, protests and voting to be important. And you mentioned the fact that a lot more people of color, a lot more people who identify differently are being asked and supported to run for office. Right. And personally, I wonder, will we have anyone in office who's actually concerned with governing rather than the next election? Right. Is that part of it seems to happen on all sides of the political spectrum. Yep. It seems to be that's something why we're here. So, you know, my my thought about this is that, you know, oftentimes, I mean, I don't need to remind you that we live in sort of this globalized capitalistic framework where competition is the name of the game. Mm -hmm. We learn that in school from an early age. So this sort of competitive relationality shows up in our political realm. And a lot of times people get addicted to the applause. And so they, they pursue a political career because of the applause. And I wonder, can we actually not just elect people because they are tokens or they signify something or they represent something? Representation will fail us if we just elect tokens in, in office. What we need to do to move past this failure representationalism is actually elect people who will shape and shift the cellular structure of these institutions, not just vote here and there, right? Like really invest in the governing side of things. The shaping and changing the cellular structure, again, back to the body. I want to get back to this idea of embodiment yeah. for some. You've said that your body was unintelligible to other people. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, from an early age, I sort of disidentified with both male and female. And I didn't have the language for it until about... 2013, where the term non-binary emerged. And I thought, oh, I think that feels like me. So I went a long time sort of watching very closely the transgender movement and identifying a lot with trans folks, but I was not looking to transition from point A to point B. I, I have a much larger imagination than those two points. Mm -hmm. And I contain multitudes, I am a multiplicity becoming. Well, how do you, how do you, where does that on the box? Like what box do I check for that? And, and the language wasn't available quite yet. And then when non-binary emerged or NB, I thought, okay, that resonates with me, but how do we like invest in generative masculinities or an ethical masculinity? Because I am masculine of center, but I'm not, I don't identify as either male or female. And so here this term was, you know, like late in my PhD program, I sort of was introduced to this word and then um, began to kind of think through 
well, how do I embrace my own transness where there is like a non-identity, right? Like mm. it, it, it's, it's unintelligible to the world. And I think, you know, too, being an academic with uh, full arm sleeves is not the typical, and, and, you know, my hands are tattooed. That's not a typical representation of what an academic looks like. And so there I was sort of moving in time and space, uh, hyper unintelligible because of my own, my own orientation to disidentify with the norms of, of gender categories. And so did you have people kind of questioning how they should approach and relate to you? Oh, all the time. You know, I, mean, I meet people all the time who have never heard of they, them pronouns mm. and um, don't, they, they don't have the bandwidth to imagine it, you know, and, you know, that's part of our failure to imagine an ethical future. We have allowed the strict, stable gender cate- categories to essentially frame male and female to our detriment to the point where uh, we think that Roe v. Wade is just about women. Mm. There's a whole bunch of more people who are impacted by the decision, namely me and a whole bunch of other trans people. And, and so I'm really invested in how do we create a toolbox that is full of glitter and rainbow and opportunity so that we can, so they can, we can really embrace the multiplicity of selves. Mm. I mean, we all change throughout the day, right? Our bodies change throughout the day. Why can't our gender also change? So some people want to be more femme. Some people don't want to be. So why is that a problem? Like, can we expand our categories and make them a little bit porous for people? You're talking about rainbows and glitter. Now, during your journey, those are happy things. Yeah. During your journey, you met your current partner, right? I did. How did you two meet? Well, I I was doing a, uh, a workshop for a community here, a, a spiritual community here, um, kind of post-religious community called Imaginarium. And the title of the workshop was, I mean, it's not sexy or anything, but it, it was Dismantling Supremacy Culture. And, and she came to the, the workshop and, and I have to say that, that I had categorically sworn off dating white women or white people. Okay. Just because as a mixed race person, I found it really hard to navigate the racial conversation. So I'm not even thinking that this is a dating opportunity, but my current partner walked up to me after the workshop and said, have you ever thought about bringing the body into your work? And I was like, actually, yes, I'm trying to find a somatic instructor who can really metabolize my theory in the body and do embodiment work. And Aaron replied, oh, that's what I do. I'd love to talk further. Okay. And I was like, oh, we had uh, tea and I fell in love immediately and she thought I hated her. I I sort of live life from the shoulders up and I'm on the autism spectrum. And so I can be awkward sometimes and I don't always know how to read social scripts. And um, she walked away, think, told all of her friends, this is never going to work. I walked away thinking, oh, I think I found somebody. 
Mm -hmm. And the rest is history. I love that. You know, it's like one of those situations where you say, okay, I'm not going to date this particular type of person. And the universe just throws that very person into your life and they happen to be the one. Now, how has your partner's practice, how has it helped and informed yours? Well, I mean, I took it so seriously that I wrote a book about it. And, you know, my partner is trained as a, a dancer, as an artist, was a dance professor for many years and has sort of channeled their expertise in dance and choreography and art into what is now called cultural somatics. And so um, I really began to do a lot of reading about somatics work and what what is the what is the theory the psychology what is the ethics behind somatic work and how could that help us achieve a collective body that is more whole and has a healthy attachment and started having a lot of conversations about this with my partner we were in the pandemic so like all all we could do was visit with each other and no one else because we were quarantined mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, oh, my goodness, what if embodiment is a vision for democracy? The, you know, the the George Floyd um, execution happened, Breonna Taylor. And I decided it, it was more it was more than black people can't sleep. It, it was more than black people can't go and buy something at a um, at a dollar store or whatever. It was, we are so disconnected and disassociated from ourselves and each other that we don't know how to practice democracy with one another. So what if we suture those wounds with ourself through practices of healthy attachments and then begin to bridge with our differences? I do a lot of black-brown solidarity because we have a hard history. And what if that then becomes a snapshot of what our democratic body can become? We're taking a quick break. When we come back, we'll, con we'll continue our conversation with Dr. Robin Henderson Espinoza about embodiment and what, how that feeds their journey to activism. We'll be right back. This is Nashville. Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. My guest this hour is Dr. Robin Henderson Espinoza, author of the new book, Body Becoming, A Path to Our Liberation. It's a memoir detailing their journey to discover their own body. It's also a story about how the collective body of our culture and our democracy can be healed through somatic awareness. Dr. Robin, again, thanks for being here. Good to be here. So in addition to writing the book, you started the Activist Theology Project. What's the idea behind that? Well, I took my first faculty job in Berkeley, California. It's my dream job, queer utopia. I'm going to be sitting in avant-garde cafes, having hmm. revolutionary conversations. And then I couldn't find my people. I did find a therapist, however, but I couldn't find community. And... A few summers prior, a Latina said to me, you're not agnostic, you're 
disconnected from your roots and you're still becoming. And I thought to myself, there's a lot of truth in what they just told me. And here I am on the West Coast trying to live my best life, newly minted PhD, and then the presidential election happens. And I thought, I've got to get out of here and I've got to reconnect with my roots. So I chose the regressive politics of Tennessee over Texas. I'm a native Texan. My family is from Oaxaca, Mexico. They have migrated north over many years. I landed in Nashville par- partially because it's like middle America and, you know, it's two hours anywhere you go except California. That's four hours. Yeah. And I thought, what if I just launch my scholarship as a collaborative project of meaning making and social healing instead of tying myself or tethering myself to academic institutions where there is a very narrow lane to do my work. What what if I envisioned doing storytelling and social healing, what I call politicized theology? What if I did that in the public square and like create community? So faith and activism is something we've seen leaders and movements combine in the past. How does ATP combine those two different things in its efforts? So we try to be equal opportunity. And so we are very careful about what we mean by faith. Mm. And um, and, and theology, theology is about making meaning in life. And we all we're all theologians because we all make meaning in our life and we are meaning making people. And so we um, have people who are not of the Christian faith, who are part of our the work that we do, and we have people who are trying to recover a sense of Christian spirituality who are connected to our project. And we say all are welcome because I believe, and I write this in the book, that if we are going to have a truly robust cosmopolitan society that we've got to figure out how to um, like be in relationship with this global phenomenon called religion, mm. which is kind of ambiguous. We don't, we don't really know what it means. You know, the Latin term religion, religio means reconnecting. And yet we've seen how people are using the religion of Christianity as a tool of white supremacy. So we want to be very careful that we are stewarding this global phenomenon of religion, Buddhism, Hinduism, Jewish, the the, the Judaism, um, Islam, Christianity, like that. That we're really paying careful to the particularities, without weaponizing it. It's interesting because the major push to overturn Roe versus Wade came from religious institu- mm-hmm. institutions. And those who claim to be driven right. by their faith. So how are you able to show people that like, one can be faith-driven and in support of abortion rights, same-sex marriage, and ethical future? Well, I, I think it all depends on how you understand who God is and what's the role of Jesus. I mean, for for this side of the argument. And I think that if you have a Jesus who is an emperor— who has a toxic masculinity, then you're going to vote for that kind of Jesus being on top. But if you have a vision of Jesus as someone who is a peacemaker, who hosts meals for rowdy crowds, who 
um, doesn't stone the woman who has committed adultery, who actually befriends sinners. You've got a very different Jesus. And so I think, I think that's what's at stake right now. Who, who do we really, who do we, who do we understand God to be? Is God this puppeteer manufacturing every movement or are we giving birth to a divine reality like bringing heaven to earth? Mm. That's pretty heavy. Um, you know, question for you. How have you discovered ways to bring people together to have this simple discussion about our views? Like what environments get people to let their guards down and to open up to each other? Yeah, it's a good question because we have domesticated polarization, hmm. meaning everybody is on extreme sides and that has become homely. And I just want to let difference be. Let our differences be. And how do we be in relationship with those differences? So I say to folks, let's have a meal. It's hard to hate people over good food. And I find that when we are sharing good food with one another, there is an opportunity there to be in a different kind of relationship than us against them or oppositional is, is a framework. Mm -hmm. Like by sharing a meal, breaking bread, it's one of the tradition. You go anywhere in the world. I go to your house. The first thing you offer me. Food. Can I get you something? Give me something. You yeah. give me some food. You offer me some water. I take the time to travel. Right. And, you know, for my travels and traversing whatever I had to. Right. It could be a block. It could be t 20 miles. You want to give me sustenance. Yeah. That which sustains life. You know, thinking about that and someone who wants to, you, you said that, you know, polarization has been domesticated. And anyone who wants to come through a middle to be able to talk, to be able to connect people, seem to be ostracized right. and pushed away. But you use food to bring those folks together. Is that part of, am I picking up where you're, where you're coming from? Yeah, you know, it's relationships all the way down. So how, to be in re how do we be in relationship with everything? Like from where we buy our coffee to um, where we buy our groceries to how we have dinners with people. Like, what does that relationship look like? Does it look like competitive um, kind of jockeying positions? Or does it look like radical hospitality and radical equity? Mm -hmm. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil A. Colonna. We're talking this hour with Dr. Robin Henderson Espinoza. Question for you. Yeah. You were in Charlottesville, Virginia, August 2017, to participate in opposition to the Unite the Right rally. What happened when you were there? A lot of things happened. Um, let me first just let me say that um, Heather Heyer lost her life for standing up against neo-Nazis. Um, and... Many other things happen. Um, I happen to be standing on the corners of Second and and Water Streets, and neo Nazis lunged in my direction. Antifa got in between me and the neo Nazis. My security detail picked me up. My shorts are halfway falling off. I'm in a clergy shirt with a stole, and we get put into a fenced off uh, area with the Virginia State Police. Now. I'm not, I'm not, I mean, I'm not, for, the, the police are not high on my friend list, okay? okay? And now I'm in like a caged pen with the state police. 
this is not looking good. And then we notice that these cans are being lobbed in our direction, and we don't know if they're filled with concrete or what, but they are very hard. And so now that's not a safe place, and the state police weren't doing anything about it. And I get taken back to my hotel, which had been compromised, and someone called my hotel room and asked me if my room was okay, which I thought, no one is supposed to know that I'm staying here. Not long after that, someone tries to get into my room. I make a phone call. I try to get to a safe space, and then I can't get out of Charlottesville because of all everything that is happening. Mm-hmm. So I get a ride to D.C. I change my flight, and then I and then I fly home. It was, it was terrifying. What happened after when you got home? So I got home, and not long after that, I started receiving packages at my um, my door. I was living with two other Latinx folks, and I thought. Now someone has my address. I've got to find a secure place to live. I leave for a couple months just for safety, and I I go off the grid a bit. I, I go to the Bay Area where I knew that I had people where I could stay and kind of strategize what, what do I do. I find an apartment uh, that is a little bit more secure location, and I I moved in November to a new apartment hoping that I would be safe, but it's always a question. As you just described just now, your activism has made you visible and known. Not long ago, a planned attack on an LGBTQ event in Idaho was thwarted at the last minute. Yeah. I'm I'm wondering, did you attend any Pride celebrations here in Nashville over the weekend? So um, I did attend Pride celebrations, but it was not the big event in Metro Nashville. And the reason for that is because... The person who targeted harassment against me after I was profiled in the Tennessean in late March, early April, when the book came out, um, that person was calling for violence against the left. Mm. And so I didn't feel safe to be in a big crowd. And I did a low-key hang with safe people where I could sort of count the number of people that I was around and um, left it at that. What? So what is your experience in Charlottesville and your experience in not going because this person's called for violence against the left back in March? What, is that, what does that tell you about violence and the use of it in our society? Well, I'm a, I'm a big believer in the ethics of nonviolence. And so when I talk about violence, there can be linguistic violence, there can be physical violence, there could be material violence, there could be institutional violence, and then there can be the kind of violence that undermines people's flourishing. And I think that's what we're seeing right now is a kind of violence that undermines people's flourishing. And so I am severely, acutely attuned to the kind of violence that is being called for and have had to develop a safety plan, for example, and figure out what is next, because this is not the end of the Christo-fascist and the white nationalist calling for violence. And, and I'm terrified. You mentioned ethical futures earlier. I'd love to hear more about what that looks like. I mean... Our work right now is to steward ethical futures in the face of everything that's happening, not a segregated future. And so I think it looks like deep intersectional organizing. 
So when we get to the midterms, can we really come together in light of our differences and organize? Or are we going to keep, for example, the race conversation a black and white issue? Hmm. I mean, we really need to to see that the overturn of Roe v. Wade is going to disproportionately impact poor women of color and disabled women of color and trans people of color. And we've got to figure out how do we bridge these differences so that we can be a collective body that harnesses an ethical future. I think the work is up to us, all of us. Sometimes it can seem like everything is on fire because it is, but you know, can embodiment help us engage with the world so that I don't want to use the terms, you know, being present and being centered and whatnot, so we can actually exist in, during, through, and past everything that's happening now. I think embodiment is the only way. And I think um, being present with what is now is what will build conditions for an ethical future. And the reality is they're coming for all of us, which is why we should band together. I want to thank you so much for joining me. It's for good this to be here. Fantastic conversation. My guest is Dr. Robin Henderson Espinoza, author of the new book, Body Becoming a Path to Our Liberation. Dr. Robin, again, thank you. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, we've got a special Citizen Nashville about the city budget. Don't miss it. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A.F. Lemley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. Shout out to our intern, Doreen Chernecki, the masterminds behind our theme music are Lorange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Kelly Hughes, Ambriel Crutchfield, and Kim Baldwin. The conversation doesn't end here. Hit us up. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be really good to each other.